Uh, I know everyone just saw me last week, so thank you for coming back yet again. Uh, today we're doing one of my favorite topics, can I assert a lien? Uh, recovery subject to the carrier's rights and how to navigate third-party settlement allocations. There I am, hello everyone. Uh, live question and answer session as always, so feel free to post your questions uh, and we'll address them at the conclusion. So let's start off with our statute. So we have section 29 and section 40 in New Jersey, section 29 in New York. Both are designed to prevent a double recovery by the worker. Uh, the section 29 lien applies to compensation and medical benefits paid under this chapter. The section 40 lien applies to medical expenses incurred and compensation payments theretofore paid. The type of benefit paid, however, and the type of the recovery can impact the reimbursement, and that's what we're here to discuss today. So let's start with New Jersey. We only have a couple slides, but the content is pretty uh, dense, so we're going to take our time and work our way through this. Um, so disability payments, that's your standard old indemnity, uh, and medical necessary to cure and relieve per section 15. There's a definition actually in the statute. Um, what we do in New Jersey when figuring out whether we have a lien is we just have a baseline and that baseline is med, temp, and perm. Medical benefits, temporary disability, permanent disability. If it falls under one of those categories, chances are you have a lien on it. IME fees, court costs, legal expenses, all of that stuff are generally not subject to a lien. Uh, a rehab nurse is a maybe if you can prove that it was, again, necessary to cure and relieve uh, the petitioner. So you, we do try to argue for the inclusion of like a rehab nurse or a nurse case manager, depending on the facts of the case. Now, here is one of my absolute favorites, and there was actually um, a decision that just came out. It's not even published yet uh, from the Pancari case that was on appeal. Just came out August 19th, 2022, and basically didn't overturn this, which is not really a win, but you know we're still happy about it because we still get to argue it. Um, so we have two cases, Kunal versus CAN uh, Insurance Companies, I think that should be CNA, uh, and Pancari versus Allentown Police Department. The petitioner's share of attorney fees and expert fees uh, on an order approving settlement, which is a Section 22 permanency award for you who practice in New Jersey, um, is still included in the lien. So when you see the standard OAS in New Jersey, you'll see uh, it'll have petitioner share and respondent share. The things that fall under petitioner's share, including the attorney's fees and the IME fees and the court costs, we do try to argue for that to be included in the lien. And you can cite to these cases when you do make that argument. And it should work at least for the, uh, for the petitioner's own permanency evaluation and um, for the petitioner's attorney fees. You should be able to get away with those two at bare minimum. Um, the stuff on the other side that says respondent's share, uh, forget about it. We can't really include that. Um, no lien on funeral expenses. Payments in non-compensable cases are still subject to Section 40. I want to make that point for both New York and New Jersey. Uh, neither Section 29 nor Section 40 um, are predicated upon compensability of the case in order to have a lien. It basically says compensation payable under this chapter. It doesn't say the case has to be accepted. It doesn't say it has to be established. So um, this will come up when we get to the New York slides. But you know, let's just say you're um, voluntarily paying without admission of liability. Even if you ultimately get the case disallowed, you still have a lien on those voluntary benefit payments. Uh, no lien on Section 20. So those are your dismissal orders in New Jersey. But uh, I will draw your attention to this old, unpublished appellate division decision. It's a shame that it's unpublished because it's really helpful. Um, 
Kali versus Hitachi Power Tools, which basically says that there is um, the, the case that says that you can't have the Section 20 lean is Owen versus uh, CNR Waste. Kali versus Hitachi Power Tools says that the petitioner can agree contractually to reimburse the amounts paid under the Section 20. So you can try to argue for inclusion of that in the Section 20 settlement order uh, and try and get it on the record or in the affidavit. Finally, for New Jersey, no lien on an additional amputation award under Section 12, colon 21, or 12, parenthesis 21. Leanable third-party recoveries in New Jersey. So we were just talking about benefit payments we can assert a lien on. What third-party recoveries are subject to that lien? So the seminal case I like to point to is Fraser versus NJM. The carrier gets reimbursed whether or not the petitioner is fully compensated, and recovery is permitted from the tortfeasor or any functionally equivalent source. So this is, uh, you can really see my air quotes, functionally equivalent source. So this is the case we're going to hang our hat on for most of these things in New Jersey. I want to point out um, that this language basically says that the made whole doctrine is not a thing. Uh, the made whole doctrine, if you've heard about it in third party cases, basically stands for the proposition that the petitioner or the actual injured party should get reimbursed in, in, or should be made whole for their injuries before anyone else gets paid. That doesn't apply for Section 40 or Section 29 in New York. Um, yes to a lien on legal and medical malpractice. Yes to UM and UIM claims. Uh, that's uninsured motorists and underinsured. Um, yes on receivership of insolvent insurers, but no on balances paid by the Guarantee Association. Uh, there will be no lien reduction for multiple insurers, however. So what does this mean? Sometimes when an insurer goes into liquidation, uh, how claims in the local states get paid is the insurer typically goes into what's called ancillary receivership. And then there's a state agency in New Jersey uh, that will pay out these unresolved claims. Now, um, if, the, if it's being paid from the estate of the insurer, like it's just the receivership of the insolvent insurer, it's just being paid out from whatever they had in their bankruptcy and liquidation, we do have a lien on that recovery. Sometimes the New Jersey Guarantee Association kicks in to pay what we can't pay from the uh, receivership. We don't have a lien on that. And when I said no lien reduction for multiple insurers, um, they, the parties in the particular case that stands for this whole proposition tried to get clever and argue, well, if there's no lien on that recovery, then that affects the percentages and determines you know, what, what reduction there should be to the carrier's lien. And um, that's not a thing. Uh, the normal calculation applies. It's just you do not have a lien on uh, the amounts paid by the Guarantee Association in one of those cases. Um, no on per quad claims, no lien on per quad claims unless it's gamesmanship. A per quad claim is loss of consortium. That's, you know, that's a pretty standard example. What do I mean by unless it's gamesmanship? It has to be a legit allocation. So the general rule in both New York and New Jersey is 90-10. It'll be 90 for um, the primary injury, and 10 for the derivative injury. Uh, if you see a 50-50 allocation, 50 for the primary injury and 50 for loss of consortium or services, somebody's trying to get away with something in that instance. So it has to be an actual legitimate allocation, which means they have to prove the actual loss of consortium. So keep an eye out for nonsensical allocations like that. It, gamesmanship will not be permitted. Uh, yes to a lien on dependency benefits in a wrongful death recovery, but a third-party recovery while alive is not a recovery in favor of the dependents. Um, 
The good news is the inverse means that we have uh, a yes to lean on a recovery for a lifetime or survival claim for payments made while alive. So the easiest way to think about this, and we'll see the exact same thing in New York, is if it's a recovery for death, we have a lien on it for death benefits and vice versa. You know, if it's a recovery for a lifetime or survival claim, for instance, pain or suffering before the person passes away, yes, we have a lien on the benefits we paid to that person while alive. So basically just match up the recoveries. Yes on suits for intentional wrongs, uh, that's against the employer slash coworker. Uh, I will note, however, that you can't subrogate against your own insured. That's just going to be in violation of your contract, and it's bad business practice anyway. Um, but for one of these laid lower Millicent claims in New Jersey, yeah, we would have a lien on that potential recovery. Um, no on Title 59 claims. Those are suits against public entities in New Jersey. Uh, but yes to liens on claims against the Port Authority or entities from other states or the federal government. So Title 59 defines public entity as, you know, a public entity under this state. They mean New Jersey specifically. So if it's, you know, a suit against the city of New York that is brought in New Jersey District Court, uh, even if Section 40 applies because we paid benefits in New Jersey, uh, Title 59 is not going to apply to protect the, the city of New York, for instance. And the Port Authority is a shared entity of the city of New York and New Jersey. So you do have a lien on cases against the Port Authority in New Jersey. All right, lienable benefit payments in New York. This one's a little easier. Medical or an indemnity paid to the, uh, to the claimant, including in denied cases. There is no lien on amounts paid in lieu of first party benefits. We have numerous webinars on that topic. But basically, the no-fault law, insurance law 5102, says what counts as first-party benefits. In motor vehicle accident cases, the workers' comp carrier pays in lieu of first-party benefits. So you do not have a lien on the up to $2,000 per month in indemnity paid uh, for the first three years. After three years, you would have a lien on the indemnity paid. Uh, and you do not have a lien on medical unless, within the first year, uh, the medical has to show that there's going to be a need for further treatment. So what this boils down to is basically if the injury happens and there's no treatment for the first year, once that year goes by, you get to argue that further medical is not paid in lieu of first party benefits. None of this matters once you get to 50,000 anyway, because anything over 50K is still going to be subject to a lien. But if you want to talk about the intricacies of the no fault law, uh, that is a conversation I'm always happy to have. Uh, so feel free to reach out, and we have a bunch of resources on that, which I'll be happy to send to you if you want uh, If you want to follow up after the webinar. Yes to a lien on Section 32 settlements, so this is, you know, the flip-flop of what we saw in New Jersey with the Section 20s, uh, including in MVA cases where we have yet to pay over 50K. Why is that? Uh, well, a Section 32 is not a payment in lieu of first-party benefits. We just talked about what that is. Indemnity up to 2K per month for not more than three years. Necessary medical treatment provided within the first year. It's you know readily ascertainable that further treatment will be necessary. Uh, and I believe expenses up to $25 per day is, is the third one. Uh, a payment that is consideration for waiver of the right to future workers' comp benefits is not compensation for lo any lost period of time. It's not referable to any period of time, nor is it reimbursing any medical provider for expenses. So uh, a Section 32 is not a payment in lieu of first-party benefits. So if you've yet to pay over 50K, you can at least hang your hat on a Section 32 if you paid that when you're asserting a lien. 
Um, yes, on attorney fees, because they're a lien on indemnity in New York. That's how the indemnity awards function. Uh, IME fees, nurse, case manager, et cetera, we will argue for inclusion generally. A savvy third-party attorney is going to ask for a copy of our payment ledger, uh, and if they audit it, we may have to compromise somewhat. But generally, we're just going to assert the gross amount of the lien without reduction as a starting point. Leanable third-party recoveries, and now we're fully back in the weeds. So, ground rule. Uh, the legislative intent is to, and there are numerous cases that cite to this language, is to reimburse the carrier whenever there's a tort recovery for the same injury that was the predicate for payment of workers' comp benefits. So, yes to legal and medical malpractice, but we're seeing this uh, statement in effect right now. Medical to the extent medical malpractice required payment of additional workers' comp benefits. So only um, the medical payments referable to the malpractice, you know, the malpractice causes some further injury. Only those benefits paid because of the malpractice will be uh, recoverable from a medical malpractice case. Um, yes to suits against employers or coworkers for intentional wrongs, violations of state human rights, hostile work environment, discrimination, etc. Uh, yes to recovery from the Motor Vehicle Accident Indemnification Corporation. Uh, for anyone who um, doesn't know what, what that's about, uh, the MVAIC basically is a way to reimburse people in um, hit and runs who have no other coverage. It's a form of uh, motor vehicle accident coverage that kicks in when there isn't some other source to recover from. Uh, the requirements are pretty darn strict. Um, you know, they, there has to be a uh, police report filed and they have to be notified within the first 90 days. And, uh, you know, generally most claimants are not savvy enough to put together to do this. But if you do see that they, and the recoveries from the MVAIC are capped anyway, but if you see that they get a recovery from the MVAIC, uh, yeah, that is subject to a lien. Yes to civil rights claims against employers or governmental entities. Uh, yes to federal administrative payments that are a substitute for tort recovery. Good example here is the Military Claims Act. Uh, and yes, on a wrongful death recovery, same thing as in New Jersey, as applied to death benefits. So if it's a recovery for wrongful death and we've been paying benefits to the decedent's estate, we have a lien on the benefits paid pursuant to the death claim from the wrongful death recovery. Third-party recoveries in New York not subject to a lien. Uh, a voluntary settlement from the employer's policy without wrongdoing or liability, not subject to a lien. Uh, I should note Section 29 references actions against such other and, you know, does make reference to, you know, uh, an action sounding in tort. So, you know, a voluntary settlement from the employer's own policy without wrongdoing or liability admissions is not going to be subject to a lien. It's not a recovery from such other, like a third party. Uh, UIM slash UM benefits, um, not subject to a lien. I put here, consider contractual agreement. What do I mean by that? Well, sometimes these recoveries are going to end up being bifurcated, right? Uh, the reason why there's a UIM recovery, uh, underinsured motorist recovery, is because maybe there's the minimum policy in place for the action against the tortfeasor. So, you know, the claimant's recovery is capped at 25000 from the actual tortfeasor because they have the bare policy minimum in New York. There's going to be a separate UIM claim uh, against either the employer's uh, UIM carrier or um, the claimant's own UIM carrier that comes later on down the road. Now, depending on what your ultimate exposure is on the case, you can actually kind of get creative. And this also sort of depends on um, 
the extent to which the claimant really wants and or needs the money. Um, hint is, you know, maybe a few benefits suspended while on appeal, for instance. This is a good way to sort of harmonize those two aspects of the case. Um, so what you can do is offer to maybe waive a portion of the lien up front or take no reimbursement at all. Uh, and when you issue that third-party consent agreement, which is required under Section 29.5 anyway, um, you can have the claimant sign off on an agreement to reimburse you from the eventual UIM recovery. Now, you know, the law says you don't have a right to it. You can agree to contractually whatever the heck you want. And all a third-party consent agreement is anyway is just a, you know, a settlement contract. So, you know, you can kind of move the numbers around and try and get creative. The obvious risk here is, you know, maybe ultimately there is no UIM recovery. Maybe the case gets dismissed. So, you know, there's sort of um, a balancing involved here, but I would encourage you to get creative with maybe shifting money from point A to point B. Uh, federal Victims Compensation Law Recovery, Section 11 Victims and, uh, sorry, September 11th Victims and the Families Relief Act, not subject to a recovery um, or not subject to a lien. Uh, amounts paid in lieu of first-party benefits in MBA cases. We talked about that earlier. Um, but a suit for the first 50000 the basic economic loss, is going to be prohibited by Insurance Law 5104 anyway. So if the total damages don't exceed 50K, uh, number one, the case might be um, subject to dismissal, the third-party action, for that reason alone, unless there's uh, a proof of a serious injury. Not that hard to prove, unfortunately. Um, but, you know, there's not going to be a suit for the first 50K anyway. This is just in here for the purpose of, you know, being complete with what we're discussing. Uh, and the same thing as what we just talked about in New Jersey. A legit recovery for loss of consortium is not going to be subject to a lien. Again, keep in mind that 90-10 rule. Keep in mind that there are elements of a cause of action for loss of consortium that still have to be proved. So, you know, yeah, make sure to audit that claim for loss of consortium. If you see a, like a 70-30 or even a 50-50 allocation, chances are someone's trying to get away with something here. Intervention required? Well, the answer is technically no in both states. I would caution you Section 40 does require notice of the lien under Section 40D to perfect it. But no, unlike in some cases, no unlike in some states, no formal intervention is required. Can you intervene anyway? Yes, um, because you're theoretically impacted by any disposition of the case and you have common questions of law, in fact, um, you know, with the claimant's action, you know, that's pretty much the universal standard for being permitted to intervene. So yeah, uh, you, no one's gonna turn down intervener and both states say, you know, that the court should grant it liberally in the in, uh, interest of justice anyway. So you're gonna be able to intervene if you want. Um, formal intervener is highly recommended in catastrophic exposure cases uh, to have a seat at the table and stay on top of case developments. What do I mean by seat at the table? Well, you're now a party to the case. All of the discovery demands and responses are gonna come back and forth through you. And we've actually done this in our office on a couple of cases where in, we, we file the motion to intervene, everyone goes, oh God, I don't wanna deal with this. You reach out to them and say, okay, we can stipulate to intervene. And in that stipulation of intervention, you just note, we're doing this for the purpose of protecting our lien rights. You know, everyone agrees that our intervener complaint is deemed automatically uh, denied us to all allegations, uh, and we're not going to participate in recovery or prosecute the case at all. And then you just sit back and watch. But the point is, you're copied on everything. 
every court notice, every hearing notice, every mediation, arbitration, pre-settlement or settlement conference, you're there for all of it. And when you have one of these catastrophic exposure cases, that's a really good benefit because it gives you an idea of what your ultimate recovery might be and how long it's gonna take you to get there. Uh, and that allows you to make more informed decisions in the comp claim if it's still ongoing. Uh, and no one can hide anything from you. That's, that's another added benefit. Um, also recommended if the third party attorney is disputing the lien or pursuing nonsense allocations as we discussed before, you might wanna intervene just to cover yourself. I would note that in uh, New York section 29.5 gives us a right to either grant our written consent to settle or the claimant has to at least get a compromise order under section 29.5 from the court in which the action is pending. One of those two things has to happen or else the claimant waives the right to workers comp benefits uh, from the third, um, if they do not get consent to settle the third party case or they do not get a compromise order. So. The good news is in New York, you'll ultimately be able to, if you don't want to grant your consent to settle because of some fishy stuff, um, the good news is you'll ultimately be able to litigate the amount of the settlement anyway because the claimant's only remedy is to go for the 29.5 compromise order. Just note there's no such requirement in New Jersey, which means the cases usually require higher scrutiny. The translation is here. I would encourage intervention more in a New Jersey case in general. So here are takeaways. Maximizing recovery and complex claims. The ground rule, always request a closing statement. This will itemize the uh, recoveries and show you the costs and disbursements and the attorney's fee. You want that in writing and you want to be able to look at it and review it in detail. Know your math, the Kelly calculation in New York. Uh, we have numerous webinars on that topic too and I'm always happy to discuss it. The cap on reductions in New Jersey and then I put in et cetera. New Jersey, uh, the attorney's fee is capped at one third, and the expenses of suit are capped at 750. So if the expenses of suit are only $500, that's all you take off. If the attorney's fee in the aggregate uh, is only 25% or 29%, there's nothing that says you have to lop off a third. Um, and I would note that there's actually a court rule. This is the next little bullet point we have here. Know the local rules for attorney's fees. New Jersey Court Rule 1 colon 21-7, District or Federal Rules, et cetera. 1 colon 21-7 has a step-down fee arrangement in New Jersey that basically once you get over 750K, the amount of the retainer drops gradually. Uh, and there are recent cases in New Jersey saying that for the Section 40 lien reduction purposes, you just average whatever the total attorney's fee is to the total recovery, and that's what comes off the lien. Um, note that, you know, in some federal recoveries against federal third-party defendants, the attorney's fee uh, might be capped at 25% even. So just make sure you're up to date on the rules uh, for the reductions to your lien. Keep a close eye on the pleadings and the causes of action alleged at the outset. You will see they'll have a claim for pain and suffering. You have a lien on that in New York and New Jersey both. You'll see there will be one for negligence, and then there will be one for loss of consortium. They'll have telegraphed that this is a thing they're going for ultimately. So you can see this coming from the moment the third party action is filed or when an amended complaint is submitted. Watch for mediations, arbitration, settlement conferences. You can monitor the dockets. Um, a lot of times, everyone will want you to show up anyway because you know they want to resolve the issue with the lien. It's kind of a hurdle to settlement generally, but sometimes you know it's going through the crazy filter 
you know, sometimes you don't get to appear at these things, and then third-party counsel comes to you and goes, oh, liability is, is terrible on this case, and it's going to get dismissed on summary judgment, and, you know, they're really not putting up any money, so you better just compromise the lien, or we all get nothing. Well, if you had been at the mediation or arbitration, you would have been able to call BS on that. So um, watch for those dates, and if you're not formally intervened in the case, you know, I would encourage you to ask if you can go anyway. Um, consider formally intervening if the attorney is disputing the amount of the lien or the recovery subject to the lien. Again, for the reasons we discussed, particularly in New Jersey cases. Remember the laws on your side. There is no such thing as a third, a third, a third. Section 40B and Section 40C lay out the calculation when the recovery is more um, than our lien and when the recovery is less than our lien. The Kelly math in New York, there are cases in both states that say the court is literally without power to do anything other than follow the statute. So if, you know, they say, you know, you better take a reduced lien or you're not going to get anything. All right, well, why don't you see what the court says about it? We just had a, a case where we were able to get reimbursed in New Jersey the entire third party settlement after attorney's fees and costs because the lien was so large and petitioner's counsel wanted us to take a third, a third, a third, said the court, you know, would um, see that we were being unreasonable and would give him what he was asking for anyway. Well, surprise, surprise, that's not what the law says. So the court actually instructed the defendant to cut the entire check to us after giving petitioner's counsel his attorney's fees and costs. Finally, get creative. Consider contractual agreements, like we said, for the UIM benefits uh, or moving fees around. What do I mean by that? Sometimes the inability to get an attorney's fee will be a hurdle to a global settlement in New York, for instance. You know, they won't want to put through a Section 32 for $0 because then they don't get an attorney's fee. Okay, well, why don't you just agree contractually that uh, the attorney's fee paid pursuant to the Section 32 will be reimbursed dollar for dollar and everything else will be reimbursed under Section 29 as normal. Boom, you've had no additional exposure, he gets his attorney's fee, and everyone walks away happy because you got creative. So I would encourage you to just think about moving money around and get engaging in these extra contractual agreements. And like I said, you know, we really only had about 10 slides, but uh, pretty dense subject matter, so I think we're at the 25 minute mark already. Uh, let me check for questions. And as always, I love discussing this stuff. This is what I do. Uh, I can't get enough of it. So if anyone wants to reach out to me to uh, discuss any of these issues or get maybe some case law from what we discussed, feel free to email me, cmajor at loslc.com, or give me a call. All right. Check for questions. Here we go. How do you handle if the claimant's attorney refuses to supply the closing statement? Don't consent to settlement. So you, at that point, it's a pretty easy response. It's just, all right, sorry, I can't do anything. And sometimes, you know, they'll say, oh, but there's a confidentiality agreement. Okay, then what do you need me to sign off on to give it to me? I won't show it to anyone else. This is just for my purposes. So, you know, that's the point to, you know, theatrically throw up your hands and go, oh, well, sorry, I guess you're going to have to ask the court what the reimbursement is because, I can't do the math and I need this in writing. Just put your foot down. You know, the court is literally without power to do anything than grant you what's under the statute. So that's in both New York and New Jersey. So if they won't supply the closing statement, say, okay, great. File all your papers with the court. I'll get it in writing then anyway. All of this is gonna come out. It's just a matter of how quickly we get there. 
just put your foot down, strong arm these people, they'll, they'll roll over. Um, second question, I have asked our council moving forward to outline in the consent letter that consent is contingent upon supplying it. However, in a prior case, it was not outlined in our consent and the attorney will not submit the documents after numerous requests. Ooh, this is a, this is a delightful one. I'm rubbing my hands together for a reason. I'm gonna go ahead and guess that this is a New York case. And um, if you put in your consent letter, uh, you know, consent is contingent upon supplying the closing statement. Particularly if you put in there, um, you know, everyone understands that supplying the closing statement is a predicate to the consent. Uh, the consent is invalid if there's if the closing statement isn't timely supplied, any of that stuff. And if you put a time limit on it, you know, finalized closing statement to be supplied within 60 days of this consent, um, you know, a failure to provide that is a basis to argue the case was settled without your consent. So if they're still not supplying it, well, you know, it's in violation of the agreement, isn't it? That's the moment to file an RFA with the board saying section 29.5 has been violated. You know, the case was settled without our consent. We had express written conditions. They didn't adhere to them. We request a finding that the claimant has waived the right to future workers comp because of a violation of section 29.5. Uh, this will generally put the fear of God into them and then, you know, surprise, surprise, the closing statement is going to show up. Um, I would note that sometimes, you know, there's currently a split in board authority about whether, you know, imposing extra conditions in the consent letter is a permissible thing to do and then argue that 29.5 was violated if those additional, you know, terms and conditions you're imposing. Uh, are not adhered to, there's currently a split. But if you have that magic language that says, you know, everyone understands that this consent to settlement is expressly predicated upon provision of the closing statement within 60 or 90 days, uh, and that, you know, a failure to do so may, you know, violate the consent agreement and constitute a violation of 29.5, such that the claimant may waive the right to future workers' comp benefits, and the carrier reserves the right to make that argument every board panel decision on earth is going to find that that's actually a violation of 29.5. So, you know, in our standard consents in our office, we have a whole little blurb that says exactly that, you know, consent is expressly predicated upon provision of the closing statement and adherence to all terms and conditions herein. Claimant understands a failure to adhere to any of the foregoing shall constitute a violation of section 29.5, such that the claimant has waived the right to future workers' compensation benefits, including indemnity and medical, Blah, 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 you know, the, the whole rant. So um, long story short, if they're not giving it to you, all right, well, then that's a 29.5 violation. See you before the workers' comp board. Uh, I hope that answers your question. If you want to discuss it more, um, you know, feel free to uh, reach out to me individually. And just always remember that if they don't get your consent, the next step is a compromise order from the court anyway. So all of this information is going to come out one way or another if you just put your foot down. Um, but like I said, I'm available to discuss further if you want. I think that uh, does it for our questions. Those are some good questions. Thank you. Uh, thank you, everyone, for attending. Hopefully I see you all next month. Uh, and until then, happy Halloween. Stay safe, everybody.